As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. It was a calm sunny morning when Bevan Simmons and his 10-year-old son Brad went to check their shark nets 
but the daily routine ended in June 2003. Missing, presumed murdered, their bodies have never been found. Prosecution outlined the turbulent history between the two fishing families based in the Gulf. There's nothing up there. Have a look on the map. You go on the beach there by yourself, someone drops off, you're dead. That's it. You ain't getting home. Nature doesn't want you there. Nature doesn't like you. Nature doesn't give a fuck about you. In fact, you know, nature would prefer to just either eat you or, I don't know, get rid of you in some way because you're not, you don't belong. The Cape is the latest true crime documentary airing exclusively on the Stan streaming service, and I think it's possibly their best yet. But I am very biased because it's made by a team I've been a massive fan of for a very long time, Michael Ware and Justine Rosenthal. Australian Michael Ware is best known as a journalist and specifically a war correspondent. He was one of a small number of journalists who remained in Baghdad during the last Iraq war, and he was bureau chief for CNN. I'm not going to try to describe Michael, I'll let you hear him in a minute, but first, let me tell you this. In 2004, Michael Ware received a videotape from jihadi leader Abu Masab al-Zakawi, which he was instructed to share with the world. That video announced the birth of ISIS, the Islamic State, and al-Zakawi quickly became the world's most wanted man. In 2015, Michael Ware and his editor-turned-producer Justine Rosenthal released a brilliant documentary called Only the Dead. I won't try to describe what it's about, but here's Michael talking about it on Real Time with Bill Maher. So I, I watched your movie. I got a screen. I am. Girl. I'm sorry for that. Stop touching me. And um, <laughs> I know. I know. Seven years in Iraq, it gets lonely. I'm uh -huh. sure it gets very, very lonely. Those there. deserts are I mean, a very dark and lonely place. Lord knows you cannot anyway. hit on the local chips. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. would not go no, that, that well. That was a desert. It's the three blokes I know who did that, they all ended up dead. So. Is that true? They yeah, actually no shit. hit Yeah, on... yeah, yeah, no shit. Anyway, moving right along. Now, let's talk about this. I, I, <laughs> that takes a lot of balls in a Muslim country. <laughs> and I, you'll lose them, too. Um, <laughs> but, okay. yeah. All right. So, <laughs> but uh, your movie is, uh, I feel it's going to be the feel-good hit of the summer. It's, oh, uh, it's, a, it's a date movie. No, it's uh, it's, it's really fucking not, is it? You it's cannot really stop watching not. it, I'll tell you. Yeah. Because you shot over 250 hours on yeah. your own little camera yeah. there when you were yeah. in Iraq. Yeah. And uh, this is really about the birth of ISIS. And before there was Zarqawi, uh, there was the insurgency. What we hope the, is that if you give us 78 minutes of your lives with this movie, there will be one moment for all of you in this film where you will be in Iraq. And you'll see what it took from your children, from right. your Marines, from your soldiers, because it's, it's, it's more than the physical. Of it's course. about that place in the head and the heart that you have to go to. Only the Dead is available to buy or rent on Apple TV. But here we are, eight years later, with a very different film. It's not about a huge story of international historical significance. This time, Ware and Rosenthal bring us a story about families living off the grid along some of the most remote and inhospitable coastline of the Australian continent. 
This is a story about a man and his young son who disappeared out there one day, 20 years ago, and about the questions that have never been answered. How could an experienced fisherman's boat disappear without a trace in broad daylight, good weather and calm seas? How could everything on board, all the gear designed to float in case it fell overboard, disappear with it and never, ever show up or wash ashore? And why was the woman whose husband and son were missing searching for them with their arch nemesis? Yeah, I started hearing, uh, I suppose, a bit of wharf gossip. You're thinking, well, that can't be. You know, th th this can't possibly happen. You can't, this can't, no, 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 there'll be another explanation for this and we'll look again tomorrow. You really must see the Stan original documentary film, The Cape, and you can take advantage of the seven-day free trial if you're not already a subscriber to the service. Today we speak to producer Justine Rosenthal about the intriguing story and about why she and Michael Ware decided to make it their own. Part of what we wanted to do was in some way an elegy to Brad and Bevan Simmons. That became a, a real driving force for us, uh, not to distinguish it from other true crime, because I think people are beginning to move in that direction, that sometimes it's not just about you know, this murderous human who, who we can't understand, but that we also have to in some way honor the victims who get forgotten. And I think that that became really important to both of us because of that is that we knew this wasn't going to be an I gotcha moment or a, a whodunit. So it was, can we give closure in some way, at least to the Simmons family who felt very, I think, forgotten in all of this and we sort of felt the victims were forgotten in all this because it became about the wards and the gators and uh, you know affairs and love triangles and you know everyone's got guns and let's just you know flash bang and we said yeah. can we can we slow this down a little bit and let everyone speak and can you give a sense in some way it's almost like you're all sitting at the pub having a drink and talking about this horrifying crime that as you know Bob Catter. AMP says, you know, has left a stain on everyone's soul up there. It's sort of a forgotten story in much of the rest of Australia, but certainly not up there. But more of the backstory is, you know, there are these two sort of fishing dynasties, the wards and the gators. Uh, the gators are sort of live on their boats. They don't really have encampments. And Vince Sr. has got a hook for a hand. <laughs> oh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> but at the same time, they're millionaires. I mean, this is the other great part of the story is that these people are, you know, um, there's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of money involved. They don't look to the naked eye like there is, but there is. Yeah, well, you know, this is one of the things Michael often pushes back on this because we there's a lot of questions about there's certainly a lot of money to be made. It also costs a lot of money to function up there. True. Yep. And to run boats as well. Sure, boats are expensive. Right? And, and, and petrol. Yep. Uh, and I don't think anyone's gone and looked at the books. But we do know that, yes, there is a lot of money to be made. And as one of the former deckhands says in it, right, they, they've got no shoes. They've got no teeth. You wouldn't know it, but there's probably a lot of money. Yeah. And then you have the Ward family, which is slightly more established there. 
uh, and gets involved in sort of fishing regulations and has done well for themselves in the process of that, they live not just on their boats, but sort of in these kind of trailers and uh, jerry-rigged camps. One wouldn't think of it as the lap of luxury, but it's a sort of distinguishing characteristic between the two. Is there a sense of one being sort of fancier than the other or like what, what's the yeah. what's the culture? There is, yeah. You know, whether yeah. it's fancy, ambitious, greedy, you know, we can mince and, and, and parse words. But yes, I think there's a sense that yeah, the wards are more traditional and the gators are the rogues. I mean, the last name. Yeah. So, right. Couldn't write it better. I know. Aquatic hillbilly is one description I've read. <laughs> The origins of the story, I think, are really that um, Kathy Simmons, Nay Ward, goes off to school and meets Bevan, this sort of outsider, gets pregnant, eventually says, I want to go back up and be with my family and, and go into this, you know, go back into the fishing world. And Bevan, the father, comes along. And, and Simmons married into the... Wards? The ward, ward, the more established ward family, right, and wanted to end up getting the sort of shark reel to improve their profitability and business because it's sort of automated and can pull in more catch and more valuable catch. And the ward family have said that he became very ambitious, which feels like, or, or rather, I should say they say greedy, and maybe we should say ambitious. I was wondering that about Bevan. There's something about that lifestyle that appeals to uh, many, many Australian men and whether or not any of them will ever even visit a place like that. Did it appeal to him, do you think, when he first heard about it? Do you think there was part of him that thought, yeah, that's me, I'm going to get up there, going to get a machete in my belt, going to get out (laughs) on the boat and be that guy, I'm going to be Crocodile Dundee? Well, my sense of him... You know, they, they lived up in Weepa, which is already a little bit isolated, but has more of that mining town. In my sense of Bevan was that he was awkward as a child. You can see it in some of the photos. You sort of get a sense of it from his family. Yeah, you know, they rode around on their bikes up there and stuff like that. And I guess eventually he had a real talent for wrangling and catching cattle and, and began to find his way. But he and, and also his son, I think, were a little bit off the beaten path and just not not so rugged. I, I think the little boy ended up being a very natural fisherman, something that doesn't make it in this film, but um, you know, could sort of jump from rock to rock and knew exactly where to go and could tell the older gentleman who had just arrived there, no, no, this isn't how you do it. Let me show you where to go. Let me show you how to do this. And, and I think for Bevan, whether he naturally thought, yeah, I want to go and fish, I don't know, but I think he wanted to make something of himself. That's a running theme when you talk to any members of his family and and wanted to have things for his children. And I think was in love with Kathy. And if that's what she wanted, well, then that was where he was going to go and make a go of it. It must be hard for a man to marry into this very masculine tribe too. It's one of those classic communities. And it, it, I don't know if it's... Uh, particular to Australia, but where you can have lived somewhere for 60 years and still be an outsider. Yeah, I would think so. And I suspect that whether this had tragedy had happened or not, he would have always been on the outside. Maybe that's why he was so ambitious. Maybe he wanted to prove his worth to them. 
do something great that they could be proud of, make them a lot of money or something like that. Yeah. I mean, we'll never know. We can't mind read, but I, I think there's probably something very true in that of wanting to prove your worth up there. And yet, what what will it take for a, an old dynasty like that to fully take you in? And when and will they ever? And again, that's, a, I think, something that isn't just isolated to the Cape. We can all feel that way. And you know, there's an underlying question of whether some of that ambition also played a role. Not, not in in the documentary. Um, his wife talks about, oh, you know, he, he got greedy and she just wanted to do her barramundi fishing. She didn't want to do shark fishing. Um, but a question of whether Michael Gator, who is sort of their contemporary on the Gator side, whether that was a threat in any way to him or whether this was about the love triangle that sort of emerges over time because the Ward children and the Gator children played together when they were young. They've known each other their whole lives. Um, and the Gators were very isolated. In fact, Vince Jr., the youngest uh, boy, people didn't even know that he existed. My God, how old was he when when people realized? Well, I mean, I think, you know, so sometime in his sort of maybe early teens, somewhere in there, maybe, maybe even, let's say, 10, Everyone goes, oh, there's another one. Oh. And, you know, he wow. not educated, didn't even know when his own birthday was unless his mother, Ma Joan Gator, told him. Michael Gator uh, was clearly very intelligent. I can't speak to Vince Jr.'s intelligence level, but merely that he he was really sort of kept climbing up trees mm. and, and, and not really a functioning part of society. And that was another thing, and again, with being pulled into a family business and stuck in that world for Michael Gator, who seemed to maybe want to get out in the world. I, I might, yeah, I can't speak for him, but this is my sense is maybe he did want more. And you are in this one world where, again, then does Kathy Ward become, do you become fixated on this girl you've known since you were young, a sense that maybe this is all destined to be together because of the small choices in life that we all make, that when she goes off to school, she meets somebody else. And this isn't what Michael Gator thinks is going to happen at all. And she must seem worldly, you know, just because she's been away to school. Yeah. You know, and, and she is, I think, in that world, sort of the glamour. Yeah. And and I, and I it's not like, I think, the, it's such a small population as it is. I, I'm not sure there's all that much choice. No, And as the cop Ed Kinbacker says in the film, you know, Michael Gator comes to know the companionship of women quite late in life. I mean, he's not a bad looking guy. So, yeah, he goes off and he gets sort of distracted by other women and companionship. And the police interpretation of that is sort of that for the mother, she's got this husband who's got a hook for a hand. He's getting old. Michael Gator's going to be the main breadwinner of the family, and he's getting distracted. And, you know, a natural alliance between an, an, a, a marriage and a joining of these two dynasties would have benefited everybody in some way. It's a sordid tale involving two fishing families from the far, far north. Father and son Bevan and Brad Simmons missing, presumed murdered, by Joan Gator and her son Michael. At the centre of it all, Catherine Simmons, wife of Bevan, mother of 10-year-old Brad, 
and one-time lover of Michael Gator. Things apparently turned sour when she said there was no future for them. It's alleged with the help of his mother, Joan, he murdered father and son and disposed of their bodies. He then spent the night with an oblivious Cathy aboard the family boat, the El Dorado. In a lot of ways, it's reminiscent of the Jaden Lesky case in that the community became the story. The rest of the country could kind of look at the community and be mesmerised by the other and almost fetishise the community. And it became a point of fun in a lot of ways, all these characters, and forget, absolutely forget the victim, absolutely, and and that a crime had happened. And to look at the faces, certainly of Brad Simmons, who's a beautiful little boy, and to remember um, that he was a a little boy with his own little life and his own plans and his own friends. And it's it's heartbreaking, really. Who was Brad Simmons, this little boy? Well, this little boy, he was a, a, a 10-year-old little boy. We were, it, the 20th anniversary of this dis- disappearance just happened. And we were talking about it and saying, you know, of course, doing the math, my gosh, he'd be 30 years old now. What would his life have looked like? I think all of them did a lot of school of the air. Uh, and you know, in theory, he was not supposed, the little boy was not supposed to be on the boat that day to go clear the shark nets. And I think that that's one of the things that has hung over all of this. And both the cop, the fishing patrol officer, everyone sort of says, they can't imagine no matter whom it may have been. And let, let's not say it's a disappearance because I think it's sort of established it's not. They're not going to appear one day. And as many people say, it's not like they were plucked up by aliens either, but a sense that however the crime unfolded, one has to hope nobody believed that little boy was going to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There was certainly lots of talk of, well, if Bevan went missing at the Nets, no one would ever know, no one would ever care. And I do wonder if 10-year-old Brad had not been in the boat, would this have just been one of those things that happens up there and someone goes missing and so it goes because it is an easy place to disappear. Yes, yeah, dangerous place. And especially for a bloke who didn't grow up there, people say, oh, well, he never really knew what he was doing. It was like, you know. But again, and, and literally and figuratively, I mean, I think there are people who go up there mm. to disappear, yeah. to, to, to run away from their lives, their identities and, and start anew. And... This one turned out, unfortunately, very differently than that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't I preface by saying, you know, I'm an accidental documentarian. So I started really in the very staid world of foreign policy and then figured out, all right, maybe I don't want to just be doing policy papers and started editing other people's foreign policy work. I sort of thought, oh, this appeals to that puzzle-making nature that I have of moving little bits of logic around in sentences and uh, can you make someone sound a little bit better here or clarify a thought there or interrogate them to see what they really want to say yeah. and move from there into more mainstream media, editing Newsweek and the Daily Beast. So having to do the whole panoply of lifestyle and science and foreign policy. That's actually how Michael and I met. I was his editor uh, in print. And then he convinced me to come join him in making Only the Dead together. And there we had 400 hours of archive and had to go in and, and shape a story out of you know, a reporter's notebook and little glimpses into life. And then that painful process where you may really love a scene or an interaction and know it's just never going to make it in. You keep trying to stick it in there and then it falls back yeah, out. Yeah, because because it felt like he knew and, and you would have known the, the story that you wanted to tell within that. And there would have been so much great stuff. And, and it would just been such a heartbreaking process to cut it down, right? Yeah, well, because some things just don't end up translating. You can see the humor or you can see the heart, but you can't make them work with everything else that's there. And so with this documentary, I think we went in, obviously knowing this 20-year-old tale and went through all the court transcripts and read through a lot of the more salacious newspaper coverage of it, things that had been on the news. But I think we knew right away we wanted to tell a more human story. I think that's often 
the place we go to, whether it's in war or now in some mutated form of a true crime, because we weren't going to ever, I think, make a what's now become a traditional true crime documentary. There was a sense that there were some universal stories or lessons or ideas to be told in a very foreign environment. And so this sense that the power of the small choices we all make in our everyday lives, turning left as opposed to turning right, the young boyfriend here, an affair, um, whether you choose to go into the family business and the pressures of making those choices and do you feel confined by them? Do you feel freed by them? That I think, again, not everybody has to choose whether to go into a family business, but we all have a sense of what that kind of legacy means. And then what happens when you are living a very human life in the furthest reaches of the world where there is no law and order? And does that environment have an impact on you as a human being and on all of our humanity? Does it push you to places and have you make choices that you might not otherwise make. We were approached by Stan and the Wooden Horse Abduction Company. So this was the first time that we were not the genesis of the idea. Um, And so then it was, do you want to do it? And there was a little bit of debate. Uh, Because at first, Michael honestly said, true crime. I I like watching it, but what what are we doing here? And I said, no, no, wait a minute. Let's sit down and talk about this and look at what's really in here. Because I found myself immediately intrigued by these sort of undercurrents. You could see the minute you started kind of learning about the people and reading about the people going, this is not such a simple story. And yes, so then what began to appeal to us was this being pushed to the brink of your humanity. And I think we just ended up sending Michael upriver into the heart of darkness yet again and you know and see what you can find i think we put away all pretense had some of course you've got to write your treatments and have an idea and say this is what act one two and three are going to look like but then you have to find out who's going to really talk to you are they going to reveal something unexpected michael i think one of his gifts is to whether it's get people to talk to him or allow people to talk and that's one of the pleasures of us getting to work together is I can then take all of that dialogue and find within it. I mean, you, you want to, again, use it all, but you find within it those truths. And one of the gratifying things in this one happened to be that I think that original thesis that nature can make us all capable of things we thought were perhaps not within our souls. Everyone in the film started speaking to that quite naturally. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective that nature does give us all, I guess. That's a way of thinking about it. Every possibility, every instinct, and then nurture gives us the conditions for certain instincts to ripen. Well, you know, one of the things that, speaking to that, that we noticed, because uh, we spoke to people within the Indigenous community as well as part of this, is you know their relationship to the environment is so very different. Mm sort of say there's almost concentric circles of belonging and then further concentric circles of of being outsiders. So, you know, the original owners of the land never seeming to really fight with it. Then you have these fishing dynasties and communities where the 
families have lived there for generations. So in some ways, they are both insiders and outsiders, but they always seem to be fighting more with nature. I mean, they're predators, you know, they're, and there's a, a brutality to that industry that I, until I saw it, I didn't really understand existed in that way. You know, you knew there were crocodiles and things with this, you know, the way they bludgeon the prey to death. Yeah, there's a sense of trying to tame it all the time um, rather than existing within it and being part of it. Is there any tourism up there at all? Does the odd boat come by or, I mean, tourism has opened up um, up north in the last couple of decades. Has it come anywhere near these guys? It is extraordinarily isolated and it's hard to see why anyone want to go up that river a ways or up another tributary to see something. That's what's great about this documentary too. Again, we Australians forget or maybe didn't even know how much of the country is still so isolated, you know. We forget you go to Cairns, you go to Port Douglas and you forget that's not even all the way up. (laughs) There's still a lot more up there, you know. You go to Darwin and there's still a lot that is inaccessible. Well, and, you know, I have to tell you, we had um, the Simmons family, the, the victims' family, were up in the Northern Territories while we were on this shoot. And so, well, we can't miss them, have to talk to them. So we had to, you know, charter a tiny little plane, hope that the boys and the equipment could all balance out. We didn't have to leave anybody behind. And, you know, you sort of puddle jump up there. And that's another environment with its own color and texture and looks nothing like even the other nearest, I would think, big town would be Kurumba on that side of the coast. And it's, what, about 250,000 kilometers, and you've got about 35,000 people. It's a different world, isn't it? It is, and one that is almost unfathomable. We've tried visually to give a sense of what it is, but then that brings you back to, and yet they are people. Oh, it makes me emotional, actually. I mean, to be anywhere near anywhere like that in Australia, it makes me emotional that it's still there, that it is untouched, that we haven't, I don't want to say ruined everything. <laughs> right. No, I mean, you know, we, we saw some of the I don't know, damage, but the impact that the fishing industry has had up there, uh, you know, this, this story of the swordfish, they used to be just brutally killed because they were dangerous to the fishermen. And, you know, now they're endangered. And almost everyone we spoke to who had been in the film and, and spoken to some of that, they're scattered now, but those who are no longer up there regret a lot of what they did in the ways that they impacted or damaged the environment and weren't thinking about it. We were not as aware then. What's your favourite bit? For me, it would be definitely being in the field and collating the stuff, you know, the film. And th- do you love that bit or do you love being back at the computer and editing it? I love the initial process when we get to think about what this might look like, even as you do keep all pretense to the side, you still say, this is something we can imagine. And then there is the deeply frightening part where you're trying to get the talent to talk. And I'm also then Michael's the talent too. So you've got (laughs) that dynamic and that relationship. And is, is he doing all right? And is he prepped enough? And and as I'm hearing things, are we getting what we need? And then I think where we distinguish ourselves is that that my 
favorite part yet is when we get everything back and I start to listen and start to take my notes. I'm sometimes, even if we have proper transcription, I still am listening and writing everything down by hand, not just because I am analog, but it lets me remember what they've said. And I can start to star things that I'm noting. And then some you'll see themes appear because you'll hear more than one person yeah. touch on a topic. And I said, oh, all right. The lawless, you start to hear everyone talk about, you know, it's lawless. But again, then you start to hear more and more people talk about it. And then you start to also understand that I said, even though they may be warring factions, the minute the authorities become involved, that community shuts down in on yes. itself. Yeah. And and the other thing you did really well was investigate, interrogate, what does lawless mean? I like, there was a kind of a subtext about what does lawless mean? You know, maybe not uh, interested in the law of the land, as it were, the king's law. But, now. Uh, <laughs> but there's a law, believe me, you know, there is definitely a set of unspoken, unwritten rules. There's a law. And the, and. Uh, Many, both yes. about where you fish, this yeah. sort of, you know, these fishermen ha- handshake agreements. And, yeah. Yes, and then how they enforce that law upon themselves in, in different ways. And this is a very Hobbesian world. And so this says, you know, life is meant to be nasty, brutish, brutish and short. But that is, in an odd way, the absence of that law, yes, is, it, is its own. And it has absolute that you never need to touch sort of on the police and the and the feds and what's going on with all that, because certainly the police are there and they're investigating and that they spend months on this. But they, again, it's that they're interlopers. They're on the outside. And yes, that community clams up. They, they want to find Bevan and Brad if they can, certainly. I don't think people are necessarily, it, it took a while for the affair to come out because they weren't sure, do we need to talk about this? Is this something the police really need to know? The search is genuine. The feeling of loss and grief is genuine because how do you balance protecting your community while still trying to help the victims when that means cooperating with people you wouldn't normally talk to? Yeah, and certainly, you know, the pressure from Bevan's family is clashing with the uh, the shutting down of the community up there. Yeah, and as you know, they they felt shut out and they felt shut out during the search and during the trial and I think, you know, for the last 20 years. So again, that was part of this was also to give them voice. Not all of the voice, but voice. I couldn't even go the last day of the trial because I knew that they were going to get off and I couldn't bear to be there. I knew they were going to walk free and they did. They walked out of the courtroom free people. So in the end, though, I mean, I guess as journalists, you you are used to stories without resolution. For most of us, especially in a story like this that feels like, come on, you guys know exactly what happened. It's frustrating, but I get, you know, for you to leave knowing that you're not going to finish with the, there's certainly no gotcha, there's certainly no moment, um, and you're not even looking for one. These days there is a trend, certainly in true crime, to be trying to get that inquest, get that investigation reopened. You guys don't chase that. How do you not? You know there's another story or you don't bother because if it's make it or break it on that, never mind. That's not, I mean, yes, we are journalists, but I, I don't think that everything has to end in resolution. Look, I think things came up you know, that we have forwarded on that may open other leads. You hope that maybe in telling the story again, someone is brave enough to speak. One of the themes within this was about the nature of guilt 
it's sometimes in just your own silence, right? Everyone knows what's going on. Everyone hears the chatter, whether directly or through this very gossipy grapevine, though it is a, there aren't many people up there and they're very scattered. Gosh, do they all chit chat. I never felt a compulsion in this one, as Michael would say too, do we think we know what happened? Yes. Uh, do we think that there are measures of complicity and a culpability? Again, that, 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 that take over the whole gulf without you know, any specific finger pointing. But I don't think we were trying to just tell this human story in this sense of um, these universal truths because we didn't think we could get the hot mic thirst moment. It was, no, this story is worth telling in and of itself. We didn't think the Gators were going to talk. We were surprised, I think, a little bit that the wards clammed up. You know, they had been participating in various other activities that circled around this documentary. But I thought that gave us what I what I was hoping is closure. And again, if something further happens from this, great. Um, but if not, it was, yes, a, a, a long elegy to the land, to the people there, and to a 10-year-old boy and his father who I think unwittingly got wrapped up in something they could have never foreseen and that that was a powerful story to tell. And, you know, if you shed a tear, well, maybe, maybe then we've done our jobs. <laughs> I mean, look, we certainly do know that in Queensland, there's not double jeopardy and the case is not closed, you know, and never will be. And I, I don't just say double jeopardy in the sense that it has to be the people who are already tried. But if fresh evidence is found about anybody's involvement, there is the opportunity to go back to that well. But that wasn't going to be our job to do. Bevan and Brad's bodies remain missing. They haven't been recovered. These matters remain live investigations forever. You know, it's, it's a bleeding sore. Day one of a murder? Hmm. All good. Day three, four, five? Yeah. I got this. Week one. Week two. A month, a year, 10 years, 20 years. A murderer has to live with the guilt. Thank you to our guest today, Justine Rosenthal, producer of The Cape, which you can see exclusively on Stan. And if you're not already a subscriber, you can take advantage of their seven-day free trial to catch this brilliant film. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.